Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast series Hate Crime on the Two Islands. This project seeks to explore key aspects of the law reform processes with respect to hate crime that are occurring in England and Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Ireland. My name is Mark Waters and I'm a Professor of Criminal Law and Criminology at the University of Sussex and with me is my colleague and co-host Professor Jennifer Schwepp who is an Associate Professor at the University of Limerick. With our special guests each week who bring a fresh perspective to the issue, we explore themes and developments across our two islands to inform debate and practice. Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast series Hate Crime on the Two Islands. The project seeks to explore key aspects of the law reform processes with respect to hate crime that are occurring in England and Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Ireland. My name is Mark Waters and I'm a Professor of Criminal Law and Criminology at the University of Sussex and with me is my colleague and co-host Professor Jennifer Schwepp who is an Associate Professor at the University of Limerick. Hi Jennifer, how are you today? Marvellous as always, how are you? I'm good, are you ready for some more critical discussion on criminal justice responses to hate crime? I am and I'm really, really excited about today. I have been excited about all the episodes, but I'm particularly excited about today. (laughs) Okay, let's get started then. So in today's session we ask, what alternative justice measures should we use to address the problem of hate crime? Now throughout this series we have focused on discussions on criminal law and how the law ought to be structured and who it ought to protect. But a bigger question is, what can criminal justice systems do to address hate crime beyond the enforcement of criminal law and the punishments that are attached to prescribed offences? Well, with me today are uh, three very experienced criminal justice practitioners to discuss whether restorative justice should play a bigger role in addressing hate crime. Now, based in Sussex in England, we have Kate Belbin, who is a restorative justice practitioner and partnership manager at Sussex Police. And along with Kate is Alex Hyatt, who is a restorative services delivery officer for Sussex Police. And last, but by no means least, joining us is Darren Coventry Howlett, who is a police sergeant and interfaith hate and extremism response project lead at Safe Haven, a non-for-profit initiative that empowers young people and fosters integration in Ireland. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Now, I think I might start with you, Kate. And the question I want to ask you is, can you describe to our listeners what restorative justice is and why do you think it should be used for hate crime? Thank you. Um, So restorative justice, broadly speaking, although we won't get into the ins and outs of a specific definition because we had some conversation earlier about different people's understanding, but it is about bringing those harmed by crime and conflict into communication to address the harm caused and agree a positive way forward. Restorative justice is very much cited within the criminal justice process, whereas restorative practice is a much broader term which addresses outside of the criminal justice systems, which I'm sure I will veer into during our conversations. So what would you say are some of the key values and principles which underpin both restorative justice and restorative practices? So essentially it is about communication. So it's about that 
area of crime and conflict and we know that can be within the criminal justice system but it can also be in a lot of other settings whether it's educational or looked after or supported accommodation that's why the breadth is so huge but specifically looking at restorative justice the the basic premise is that communication between those interested parties and we call them harmed and harmers for the reason being it's not always defined in law as the victim and the offender because we know that crime and conflict can be much further reached So that's the basic premise. It's all about volunteerism. It's about hearing victim voice, being respectful within the space, and also having a positive experience for everybody involved. It can be absolutely transformative. And this is why I feel passionately it can be used in the right circumstances for hate crime. Thanks, Kate. I'm really interested to hear more about a programme that you run in Sussex called Restore Diversity. My understanding that it was one of the first restorative justice programs used specifically for hate crime with, uh, within the criminal justice system. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how it works? Absolutely. So when I first um, started working in Sussex back in 2013, I was based in Brighton and Hove, which is a wonderful, diverse city. Absolutely love the city. And It's about serving our communities when it comes to, you know, working for the police and responding to community needs. I was a restorative justice practitioner. I brought with me years of experience of restorative practice within antisocial behaviour world. And so when I started working on out-of-court disposals for Sussex Police, so this is resolving lower level crime in the criminal justice system, I found that actually... We had a number of victims who wanted something done, didn't want it to happen to anyone else, but for various different reasons, didn't want to go through the formal criminal justice process. So the first case that I dealt with was a case of transphobic abuse within Kemptown of uh, Brighton City. And this was two 17-year-olds who had perpetrated it against a female within our city. And she had reported it, but didn't actually want to give a statement and progress through the court system. Various reasons. I think part of it were the perpetrators were were quite young. Um, There was definitely a learning opportunity there. And we wanted to empower within the realms of what we could do. So not going... to court, not not wanting to give a statement, we thought, how could we deal with this meaningfully, actually delivering a justice that she wanted? And I think the first iteration of it, I was working with Rory Finn, our LGBT officer at the time, and we had this educational package because we know that a lot of hate crime, certainly not all, but a lot is either learned behaviour or ignorance of the harm that it causes, which is why restorative justice is such a wonderful tool because it addresses directly from the mouth of the harm party how it's impacted upon them so what we wanted to do was really bring those two parties into communication there wasn't a direct exchange at the wishes of the victim but there was a meaningful exchange using the restorative questions and also we gave an an educational element to this um what so you you say we asked the restorative questions yeah what are the restorative what are the restorative questions i can hear everyone at home the restorative questions i haven't heard of the restorative questions what are those okay well again there's there's many iterations of the script but in broadly it's what happened what were you thinking what were you feeling 
what have your thoughts been since what's the hardest thing been for you who's been harmed by this and what would you like to happen now now we start um with the person who has been who has perpetrated the harm because it gives a sense of ownership and it's that elephant in the room you want to get that out in the room to say actually this happened acknowledge it and empower that space for for that those involved Um, and then we ask the same questions of those who've been harmed that can be the primary victim and those who might have witnessed it or friends and family who have been impacted and then we go back to the perpetrator as a as a means to respond to say actually what is going to happen now And, and so why do you ask those questions specifically what's 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 the kind of goal what's the main purpose of doing it in that order Well, there's a lot of research which backs this up, and I find it to be a a really powerful model. We never ask why, because once you start asking why, you take on the role of that accusatory parental voice, and that's just going to evoke feelings of wanting to go into the child. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. So actually, we never ask why, but we try and understand the situation through the words of those involved but by prompting and thinking about actually what's our reaction on a conscious level but also on an emotional level and that's when we bring out the harm that's actually been caused. Thanks Kate and and Alex you you now run this program so how many how many cases have you done? Kate's just been talking about the research backing this up and restorative justice can help to sort of repair harms and resolve conflict. But you're doing this on a daily basis. So what happens? How does it work? Well, I think as Kate's kind of very well put, it's literally about addressing the harm. It's about getting people to understand the impact of language. A lot of the cases we deal with, and I know this is a podcast, you can't see me, but I'm in quotation, low level. Um, So we talk about low level, which is is a horrible expression. But in terms of the, the cases that we deal with, it's generally people that have shouted something or said something. And actually it's about them being empowered to understand the impact of that language and also empowering victims to talk about how it's impacted on them. So uh, very much obviously traditional criminal justice doesn't really allow for that. The court process is set up in terms of someone's guilt or innocence. Um, So that what this restorative space allows is for someone to really understand and take ownership of the language they've used and the impacts it's had, but also for a victim, it really allows them to kind of talk about how that does impact on them and how that incident has kind of affected them or not affected them, whatever it might be, they're empowered to have that space and say what they need to say. Um, and can I ask then, so I, I think that in England and Wales in particular, there, there is a much longer pedigree for res- both restorative justice and restorative practices. Whereas in Northern Ireland, you know, there has been a lot of emphasis on RJ over, over the years. In Ireland, there isn't a formal practice, is there? So can you tell me a little bit about how restorative justice or restorative practices are being used in Ireland then? I think from an Irish perspective, certainly there's there's a significant difference. We do have a a longer history, I suppose, you know, of actually community involvement in the criminal justice system. We're very very community orientated sort of stuff. But from a civil society perspective, what we're actually noticing and what we're actually getting to see is um, a groundswell of of activism and a movement towards actually communities working together to try and repair harm. 
So I suppose from an Irish perspective, you know, we're, we're, we are very fortunate as well. We have, we, we've got a lot of sort of uh, movement in that direction. We have, um, for example, Ian Murder, Dr. Ian Murder in, in Minutes University, who's really pushing and driving in the School of Criminology and Law um, the, the concept of restorative justice and restorative practices and applied restorative practices. Uh, but we're noticing more and more the appetite for restorative work within civil society and, uh, and, and being moved into new spaces where you can actually look towards dealing with both social ills and social uh, injustices. Uh, so it's a great sort of opportunity or space where I think you touched on that concept of why and the, and the defensiveness that often occurs. The scripting of the restorative very often can be used very effectively within civil society to, to actually sort of address the issues in relation to state responses and, and agency responses and certainly with the likes of uh, a collaborative response towards issues such as um, hate and, and, and extremism. So from an Irish perspective, it may be younger and hasn't been as formalised as we see in the, in the UK, but we are starting to sort of notice a huge appetite and, and a lot of established groups and a lot of established um, civil society agencies working in the space of restorative, whether it's restorative practices or in, in, in the more formalised restorative justice uh, areas, particularly, I suppose, when it comes to, I think in, a, in an Irish context, it, it, you see restorative justice formalised only within the space of youth justice and, and, and uh, the youth diversion schemes that apply in order to sort of move youth away from, from, from criminality. But in the spaces outside of that, we're starting to notice more and more appetite for the likes of restorative responses. And can you tell us a little bit about your work at Safe Haven then, Darren, which is a group that you're, you're working with and how that is helping to address some of the conflict between groups in Dublin outside? I'm correct in thinking, aren't I, that it's outside of the criminal justice system altogether. And um, so can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, Dublin City Interfaith Forum is established uh, as a, a grouping of, of different faith communities within the capital city. So very often, uh, you know, we have representation from all different uh, faith minorities within Ireland. And I suppose in a lot of ways, we've, we're moving very quickly from a very culturally Catholic sort of uh, society into a space where there's a, a lot of secularism. And in that space also, there's, you know, it leaves a vulnerability for a lot of communities, particularly faith communities. So having worked with them in a, in a policing capacity in the, 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 uh, the National Diversity Office, I, 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 I stayed on being from a faith minority myself. And uh, we looked at the practical dimensions of how do we how do we support faith communities? How do we look at interfaith conflict and, uh, and uh, look at sort of dialogue? from the perspective of when it goes wrong, how do we get back to a, a space where, you know, we've been able to move past damage and intrafaith conflict and intrafaith issues. And then also, dare I say, you know, the, the concept of, of, of extremism and looking at the external pressures that come from, for example, the far right and looking at deconstructing such issues as, uh, you know, the racialization of faith expression as we see with uh, anti-Muslim hatred as, you know, your, your, one of your colleagues, Dr. James Carr, for example, would have spent a considerable amount of time emphasizing as a, you know, as an expression of Islamophobia. And then we also see that with anti-Semitism. So we're not immune to all of that. And the faith communities feel very exposed in a, in a space where it's, it's, I suppose, when we're embracing diversity, faith also gets lost somewhere in the, 
in the mix. And we forget that when it comes to uh, certain communities, the level of religiosity may not necessarily be reflective within the wider society. And also then, I suppose, we also forget the, the idea of um, intersectionality uh, and that, you know, the idea that faith expression, gender identity and, and uh, sexual orientation, they're not mutually exclusive concepts. And in order for a, a person to be able to fully realize and be able to bring their full selves to, into, into, into a space, whether it's into their, into their work life or whether it's into their private life, that we need to create safe havens or safe spaces where these difficult conversations can take place, where we can look towards safeguarding individuals and, and signposting towards supports if they're victims. So we encourage victims or those who've been harmed by hate, hostility, discrimination to report. And when we talk about reporting, we're not talking about reporting to necessarily to the, 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 the Irish police, but we're also talking about, well, either or, you can also report through iReport, through the iReport system and, and through civil society format so that they recognise and acknowledge that something has occurred and happened and try and find ways of moving past that and finding a space where they can actually move beyond the harm that's been caused. And I suppose that's where the restorative, and I love how Kate kind of talks about feeling that you, you get pulled back into the restorative practice space, because you do. On the one hand, you, you find yourself talking about restorative justice, and then all of a sudden, then you find yourself moving into the space of restorative practice. But the one thing that I think Kate has touched on uh, was the fact of the, the script. And I think that that's where it's unusual for the faith communities to suddenly have this space where we're not sitting around a table having cups of tea and saying, oh, isn't it great that we're able to do this? We're actually tackling the real issues and, and tackling some significant issues internally in relation to how one actually engages with each other through a restorative format. But more importantly, it's looking at the realistic ideas of training up safe haven advocates within the communities to stand in solidarity and coalition with those who've been harmed. So the dream, so to speak, that what happens next, we want to see the likes of safe haven advocates. We want to see the likes of faith leaders and faith communities stand up for their neighbours in faith and recognise that a, a, an attack or damage or, or, or some harm to one expression of faith is actually uh, is damage to all expressions of faith. So by being a good neighbour, we're, we're utilising that concept of, um, I suppose from a faith perspective, compassion in practice. And in a lot of ways, I do genuinely believe that that's what restorative is. It's, it brings community into a room that you become a community of practice at that moment in time when you're actually engaging in that dialogue and that communication, because it's not adversarial dialogue. It's, 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 a, it's something that at a certain point, you're, you're looking at sort of the deconstruction of shame as well in that space that you're not just labeling individuals. And I think that when it comes to the space of when we're talking about the concept of hate crime, as you well know, because you've been really working very hard, uh, Jennifer, in relation to this, we don't have hate crime legislation here. And the, the prohibition against the incitement to hatred act, it, it's threshold is just so high that the, the idea of actually being able to look for a, a, a punishment is, is, is just, it's, it's just too difficult. Um, so, what do you do when you've experienced that? Or what happens if you've experienced anti-Semitism or, or you've been a victim of not just simply Islamophobia or anti-Muslim hostility, but is it because you're a woman that's wearing a, a hijab and you've been racialized in, in relation to your faith expression? Or the, the, the fact of the matter is there's still a harm. It doesn't matter about the different forms of intersectionality that's occurred. The harm has been caused. And what can we do 
collectively. Because when people find themselves at their at the most vulnerable and in their in their most pressured, they'll turn towards people in their community, and some will turn towards faith to look for guidance and support. And if they don't have it there, where, where where's the practicalities of being able to uh, you know from a faith perspective, where's the practicalities in providing support when people need it most? I'd like to just uh, focus in on what you were saying in terms of creating safe spaces and the importance of safe spaces for people to bring their full sense, you know, their full self to whether it's work, but also within the context of restorative justice, it's into dialogue about conflict. And I think one of the concerns about restorative justice is that you are bringing, uh, for hate crime in particular, is that you're bringing someone from perhaps a, a vulnerable position mm a position where they feel disempowered, they feel marginalised in society, and they've been uh, disempowered and marginalised through a hate crime where they are subjugated because of who they are. And you're going to bring them into potentially direct contact with someone who has expressed some form of hate or prejudice or bias towards them. And I think the concern there is, is, is there not a power differentiation there? Is, is there not a real risk of that individual being re-victimized. And I throw that out really to anyone to, to, to talk about that. And, and it's a really valid point to, to raise because actually, you know, my mantra in life, but in restorative justice has always been do no further harm. Because you're right, people have been harmed. They have been, you know, many people are made to feel vulnerable. And particularly when it's hate crime, it's an attack on who they are. So it, it goes deeper. And actually, it is really important that we just listening to what you were saying, Darren, I was writing a few notes and I was thinking, actually, through the development of the scheme, we talked initially about these kind of what's perceived to be lower level crimes, but they're not. Hate crimes are never low level crimes. But in the criminal justice system, we're dealing with them as such. And we developed the scheme to make sure that we could actually apply it across the board. So it could be from the very earliest stages or we can pick it up post-sentence. So even if the criminal justice process has uh, an opportunity to, to go through its, its due process, we can still then address the harm on the other side. And actually, there's, there's a big thing to be said about voluntarism. In terms of people feeling safe, the facilitators have to be highly skilled and obviously very good at being neutral. We also do a lot of preparation to ensure that we really understand everything that's going on, all of the dynamics within the situation, within the community as well. And development of the scheme has meant that we've brought in members of our community, because actually, if you have that authentic voice and that lived experience, you are going to feel much better represented if it's someone who has that shared experience. So a lot of the victims that we've dealt with have not wanted to actually do that face-to-face. Don't get me wrong, there certainly have been um, face-to-face conferences taking place, but more often than not, it's kind of a shuttle where we've used the restorative script, but we've used someone who identifies from the same community with the same lived experience to represent them in that space. So in terms of safety, it's absolutely right that it has to be paramount because the the last thing we would want to do is to re-victimise for any way. It has to be a meaningful and powerful exchange. And that goes down to the skill of the facilitators and also the buy-in from community. It's 
we have to represent and facilitate the wishes of the community and not do unto people, but do with people. So kind of that, that's how I would say we address the safety element. But I would certainly open it up to Alex, who I've facilitated many cases with, if you want to kind of add to that, that preparation or safety discussion. And could I just pop in there before you you answer, Alex, and ask if you could maybe illustrate your answer by reference to obviously protecting the privacy of all the individuals involved. But could you illustrate uh, the case? Because for those of us working in jurisdictions without ORJ embedded in the system, you know, we're, we're not maybe entirely familiar with what, what does it actually look like? What does the, the discussion look like? I think, as Kate alluded to, I think it's, it's good facilitating being able to assess and it's its needs what does that victim want to come out of the of the process so you're really trying to meet those needs and the recent one was around some abuse that was shouted so ownership is the other thing obviously we would never bring someone into a process where someone's going i didn't say that or they're going to come into a space and call that person the same thing again it goes back to that re-victimization that would never happen so any safe process that's not to say that obviously somebody might say my understanding of this word is so and so and so when you bring people together you explore what that understanding of that word was and again it goes back to what's the victim to come out of this and as Kate said most victims just don't want there to be another victim on the other side so the one we had recent was around the words and and the person's kind of lack of understanding around why that word was potentially offensive to somebody or why that term was actually offensive so really it's just about exploring that with with the with the offender and kind of and that's the thing you're really empowering that that community member because ultimately they don't want someone to commit another offense or they want that person not to say that against so you're giving them a, a unique kind of justice and so in this case they were able to explain that to the victor the offender in terms of or the harmer as we would refer to them how that language does impact on them and the history of that language so in those cases like i say it's good assessment and it's about understanding the needs of what you want to come out of the situation and really Really drilling down what's being said and the, the harm and the impact we can't for i always say this we can't force people to think something else we can't force people to think the way we think but what we can do is hopefully get them to explore those those thoughts and those feelings or those viewpoints and and hear how you know language or whatever it might be impacts so i think really as i said it's essential good facilitation good understanding of what these people want to come out of it and managing expectations so if you know the person's not going to get out of it what they want maybe seeking to take an alternative route or say it's not possible for this to go ahead you know we don't deal with people that are they're going to sit there in a room and can't start being abusive again whether that be you know verbally or physically it needs to be safe the whole process needs to be safe but how does it work though on a, an actual practical level so jennifer was just saying that in Ireland, restorative justice isn't integrated into the system as much as it is in England and Wales. And actually, I think it's we're quite far away from it being systematised within any parts of uh, the UK. I think this particular project is one of just a few projects running nationally. So if you're lucky enough really to live in uh, Brighton and Hove and you have access to this alternative justice mechanism, that's great. But it's very unlikely that you'll have access to restorative justice if you're a victim of a hate crime in most other parts of England and Wales. So if I'm in Brighton and Hove and I feel that I've been a victim of a hate crime, how do I end up going through a restorative justice conference through restore diversity what happens I, I report it to the police and then what happens 
So obviously an officer will come and investigate the crime, will take all the details, and we'll have that conversation with you. And again, uh, we hate to talk about levels, but you've got thrive factors. So, you know, threat, harm, risk, investigation, vulnerability, engagement, all these kind of factors we have to take into consideration in terms of what's proportionate. Um, so, for example, I suppose a really violent, serious offence, it possibly is not going to be appropriate for a restore diversity community resolution, but it might be something that it would formally go through the criminal justice system and then we could pick up as a post-sentence program. So this is again another reason why I really like the program because it can be done as an out-of-court disposal or it can be picked up as post-sentence if the case is too serious that it needs to go to formal criminal justice system. But going back to those, and I say in brackets, lower level offences, the victim will speak to the officer and the officer will kind of explore those options with them. So, oh, that's, you know, what would you like to come out of it? What is, because we're always seeking to provide an outstanding service, you know, to be victim-led and victim's needs. So actually, what would they like to come out of this process if they say they would like? And it is very common now for people, maybe not to use the word restorative justice, but to talk about some form of exchange. So or wanting that person's behaviour to change. So we obviously do a lot of training for our officers in Brighton, but also it is a Sussex-wide scheme. So even though it started in Brighton, it is now kind of a Sussex-wide scheme available across Sussex. So we train officers in terms of listening for those listening for those things. And then if, the, if it's, again, if it's suitable and all the risk assessment has been completed, they'll then make a referral into our service and we will pick it up from them. We'll then contact the victim and go through those restorative justice questions with them. And I just wanted to add what kind of makes it unique is the added element because we have a restorative justice service other than Restore Diversity where we deliver restorative justice for all different types of, of crimes but actually Restore Diversity is unique in that it has that restorative justice element but it also has that educational element and we tailor every exchange, every session to the individual characteristics of that case and the needs of that victim. So that's, I think, what makes it, it different from pure RJ. And I'm using your quotation marks now, Alex. You know, pure RJ is, is having that conference or that shuttle or that letter, that pure exchange. But this goes beyond and it seeks to add that element of education. So particularly, we've had a lot of cases where we've dealt with young people who've used language that they didn't appreciate was so harmful. And we've gone into the history of the language but actually we've had parents and guardians there who are learning alongside about the history of language and how it can be so offensive and, and how the law views it because the educational element is not just about the deeper harm in terms of emotional harm but how does the law view it and if this had gone through the criminal justice process if we're dealing with it out of court what would that look like having that criminal conviction with that sentence uplift how would that impact you in your life going forward how would that also impact the victim going forward in terms of them now being a victim of this hate crime because we know statistically if you're a victim of hate crime similar to domestic abuse you have usually suffered it a number of occasions before you actually report it to the police so we have this in trenched harm sometimes that we're we're dealing with and we're kind of trying to unravel and talk about not just the harm of that incident of how that that suddenly that street had felt toxic for them but actually the harm of many years of victimization for their identity for who they are and how that's gone a lot deeper so it's really important that we educate as well as understand harm and I think this is what we seek to deliver. I mean, I think it sounds incredibly beneficial to victims' communities and to 
um, offenders or whether you want to uh, call them harmers or people being held responsible. But I mean, isn't it the case that you have thousands of hate crimes reported in Sussex every year, but only a handful, dozens of cases have gone through the, the Restore Diversity programme. So why is that? Uh, what are the barriers and how can you overcome those barriers? And I think it'd be good actually also to talk uh, to Darren about what the what are the barriers also in Ireland and are they similar to those which you, you see in England and Wales? Just very quickly on that previously, in case you want to put it in there, in terms of an example for the football um, chanting, so what we did was in terms of making that, that educational session quite unique, is we, we talked about homophobia in football. So again, we, we, when, we, when we do a session, if it's homophobic, we talk about homophobia, but we really will try and make it bespoke to that situation that occurred. So this was something that was chanted during a football match. So as long as, to, as well as talking about homophobia, we kind of had a very in-depth conversation around kind of homophobia and football and their the history. So that's how we make sessions quite bespoke. It's, even as a programme, we actually tailor each session to the circumstances that are around it. So sorry, in terms of your question, what was the barriers? The ba- oh, um, well, I think of the corporate answer. I let Kate go. <laughs> So in terms of take up of the scheme, we know quite rightly, as you say, a great number of reports are are received all over the country for for reports of hate crime. And we there is a, a national and certainly a local stance that if we have the evidence, we absolutely should be prosecuting. So the fallback, the default position is to send that really strong message to say that actually we want to prosecute this through the criminal justice process. And there is an opportunity for evidence-led prosecution there in some circumstances where a victim doesn't want to provide the statement for that prosecution. We're also bound by levels, how uh, the gravity of, of different cases. So sometimes there is an opportunity for us to engage before it goes through the criminal justice process. It will take its its due course through that based on the crime type. In terms of barriers to take up, I think we started as quite a, a, a small niche scheme in Brighton and Ho responding to the needs of our community. But what we've done to develop and build it over the years is to really engage with our communities and say actually this is a viable opportunity for you to take part in whether it's part of out of court as a means to dealing with what's happened to you or post-sentence. We would love many many more referrals. I think people sometimes still want traditional criminal justice and that's absolutely their choice. It is about empowering people and giving them choice and then it's just I think about knowledge of, of the scheme and of the alternatives and of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think if, you know, restorative justice was in common parlance as much as, say, mediation was, there would be more up, more uptake on that and specifically around restore diversity. People of quite rightly get quite nervous when it's hate crime because it's so impactive. And when you come along and say, oh, let's, let's bring these people together to talk about it, you know, some people have that protective kind of element and go, you want to bring them together, <laughs> you know, and really don't understand the power of that communication, which is empowering that victim. So it might be preconceptions. It may be that 
not enough people know about it, but we're certainly bound by certain things where we can't actually progress it, say, at a lower level. And quite rightly, you know, prosecution is sending that strong message that it will not be tolerated within our society. What I would like to see is that we're picking a lot more up post-sentence. So we're doing that kind of punitive element and delivering traditional criminal justice, but also having that deeper understanding and learning and educational element post-sentence that's going to elicit behaviour change and actually empowerment of that victim to feel as if they've been heard and empowered. I mean, I, I certainly think that there's a real policy resistance towards the use of restorative justice for hate crime and that sense that it might be seen as a bit of a soft touch, you know, just get someone to apologise and then everyone can just get on with their lives. And actually, uh, we need to have prosecutions and some kind of condign punishment administered in order to recognise the severity of, of hate crimes and their impacts on broader communities. And I think it's going to take some time, isn't it, for restorative justice to sort of enter more the public consciousness around how we can respond to all different types of crime and what the outcomes might be and what the effects might be on victims and offenders. So I think we're still quite a long, long way, even in England and Wales. But I wondered what Darren thought of in terms of the the barriers, cultural or institutional, in the Irish context. I suppose uh, obviously wearing the civil society cap firmly today, but one of the observations it also comes back to the fact that you mentioned the volunteer, the, the volunteer aspect of it, that there's no compulsion uh, because that undermines the, the very process. But that also suggests that there's at some level, there's some acceptance you know, of having to try and sort of, you know, resolve some of that harmful behaviour that the person has come to some personal realisation and either the discussion before that there, there has been sort of something that, that, that actually warrants further exploration. And I think that that's where it comes back to the earlier point of talking about, you know, the, the concept of victimhood. It, it can come across as quite unpopular to, 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 to certain areas of actually looking at the so-called traditional offender as also being the victim in all of this because it's it's to do with harm it's the broader concept if they've also been harmed by this sort of action that's been taken and i suppose what really comes out of the restorative element and, and i suppose where, where people are uncomfortable about sort of dealing with it is there it's 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 that concept of separating the action from the person and actually deconstructing the act and then sort of looking at you know because i suppose at some point people are, are very uncomfortable with the, with the idea of actually saying well What's going to happen to me when I go in there? Uh, what's going to happen if I have to just go? I, I don't, you know, there's a there's a weariness. So I mean, it's about managing the, I suppose, the, the expectations of those who've been harmed, but also looking at the concept of victimhood and looking at the concept of who actually is being harmed in all of this process. Take up uh, from from a youth justice perspective is there because it's quite it's quite clearly legislated for. We do have a mediation act that's in place since to say well. We do have the uh, the European directive in relation the victims of crime, which has been transposed into Irish law. And there is provisions there. It's just a question of, I suppose, building and constructing an alternative means. And it, it, you also have to ask, is there a cultural or a societal appetite towards exploring viable alternatives towards the traditional system? So that's where the victims directive really comes into play. If they choose not to engage with the criminal justice system, does that make the money less harmed? Or does that make the money less a victim because they've chosen not to necessarily invoke that route. But it does involve the other side. It does involve the person who is actually sort of engaged in those actions who's caused the harm. 
to come along on that journey too. And that's where there's a lot of work there to try and bring individuals along because the focus was always traditionally from a criminal justice perspective on the offender. We've seen the shift uh, significantly towards the victim, whereas now with the likes of restorative, and I'm open to being corrected by, by, by Kate and Alex, but the idea of harm and who's been harmed is very much extended out towards all those in the room because the person who's actually obviously sitting in the room, who's, who's actually engaged in that behaviour, the very fact that they're sitting there and have come to the attention of others, you know, are being held to account for it by maybe sort of policing practitioners means that they themselves have potentially have been harmed also as a consequence in a very strange way. So again, it comes back to the point, as I say, about compassion and realizing that, well, actually, compassion isn't uh, selective. And then when you walk into that, into that sort of room, you, nece- you do have to necessarily apply an, an element of, of neutrality because you're trying to sort of ensure that the process itself unfolds in a very pure way. But that requires a lot of work. And I think there's a tried and tested method and people understand going to court, gauging the, the criminal justice system. And if it gets to that point of, you know, where they're able to sort of actually look for that difficult threshold of beyond all reasonable doubt, that there's some sort of recognition of, well, it, it's now acknowledged that it, this did happen to me. But as we know, when it comes to talking about hate crime, we're talking about signal crime. We're talking about the fact that victimhood extends well beyond the individual, but into the actual communities that actually would identify with that individual. The harm perpetrates out. And in a lot of ways, restorative can act hand in hand with the, the traditional sort of criminal justice system because it can address the pernicious aspect of the harm that's festering underneath. And I think that, you know, there is opportunity there. But I, I, I think Kate kind of highlighted that point where people are not necessarily aware that alternatives exist because it's a challenge to the actual current structures and orders where a lot of the funding goes. And could I come in there, Dan? Because I think that between you, you and Kate, Alex, indeed, you've highlighted some of the key issues, I suppose, with respect to restorative justice. And, you know, one of the key issues being volunteerism and the level of offending is, is another issue and getting the people into the room. Even in law reform processes with respect to hate crime, a lot of the time, restorative justice is almost presented as the silver bullet. So if we have restorative justice, sure, that'll, that'll sort it all out. And once we introduce ORJ, will be grand. Mark, you're sort of you know, acknowledged as one of the, if not the leading international expert uh, in, the, in the world on restorative justice and particular its application to hate crime. And I wonder if you could just, is it the silver bullet? Is it the case that if in every jurisdiction in the world they decided right either just for hate crime or in relation to all criminal type offences, we're going to use restorative justice and restart. Would, would that be the silver bullet? Would, would that make it all go away? Would that address everything? Is, is it the, the answer to it all? Wow. Yeah, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? You know, what is the silver bullet? And I think the quick answer is that there is no such thing as a silver bullet in terms of criminal justice responses to victimization, because uh, there is no ideal system that will apply to everyone the same, because we're all different. We all have different personalities. We all have different characters. We all have different histories. We all respond to different stimuli differently. So it's about setting up a system that you think will put everyone in the best position once it has been completed. Okay, and, and I, 
probably what I would argue based on the research that I've done in this area is that restorative justice and what it aims to achieve is probably one of the better ways in which we can respond to hate crime. And I think key to that is that it puts the victim or the person who's been harmed centre stage of the criminal process. We know globally criminal justice systems that use in particular adversarial systems, sideline victims of crime. And they they sort of are invited into that process, but only in sort of the periphery of that process, you know, as victims giving testimony or statements. And what happens is their conflict, what's happened to them, as Niels Christie famously said, is, is appropriated from them. It's taken away from them and it's professionalised so that professionals take control of people's conflicts and what's happened to them. And they put it through this professional, conventional justice process where things are done to them. And often when victims enter into that system, they experience secondary victimization. They're treated with suspicion. They're asked to repeat what's happened to them time and time again to someone else. And they're cross-examined by someone in court who can really tear them to shreds and their credibility. And then they might have absolutely no say over what the sentence is going to be. And they feel sidelined and they don't feel satisfied at the end of it. So restorative justice is about asking victims what they think and feel, bringing them into the centre of the justice process and giving them a voice. And for hate crime victims, that's particularly important because victims of hate are often marginalised, not just within the criminal justice process, but within society. They feel that they don't really have a voice. They lack confidence in reporting uh, incidents to the police because they don't think they'll be believed or they'll be treated with disrespect or even worse, with prejudice through perhaps an institutionally racist or prejudiced system. So restorative justice says to them, look, We want to hear from you what has happened to you, what your needs are, how we can repair this, how it can be resolved. And we want you to be involved in the decision making process. Okay, there will be a, you know, a formal structure around that. It's less formal than the criminal justice process, but there is a structure around that where there's risk assessments, where, you know, you practice your questions, where, you know, there's a script and, you know, where there might be some forms of reparation. But it's about allowing them to tell their stories, to redevelop their narrative, not just about what's happened to them as a victim of a hate crime, but what happens to them on a daily basis and an everyday basis when they experience microaggressions and forms of discrimination for being different in society. So it gives them that voice to redefine who they are. And as Darren was saying earlier, to give them a safe space and to fill that space. You know, this is a space for you to fill and be you and talk about what it is to be gay or to be black or to be Muslim or to be disabled in an abled, in a heterosexual, in a Christian uh, society and how that your difference is impacted by prejudices and biases. So I think it's a really, really important alternative justice mechanism. I think the more education we get out there in terms of what it is and what it achieves to do, the more people will say, actually, I would like to participate in that. In a recent study that we carried out at the University of Sussex, we asked the LGBT community, so hundreds of people from that community, what do you want from the justice process? And we explained to them what an enhanced punishment was. And we also explained to them what restorative justice is and what that looks like. And what we found was that when they were forced to choose between whether you could only have an enhanced penalty or restorative justice, the majority of people chose restorative justice once they understood what it was and what it aimed to achieve. So I think this kind of policy resistance sometimes of restorative justice is a is um, soft touch. Actually, when you see what the actuality or what the outcomes of restorative justice might be, I think that communities are a lot more 
accepting of it and embracing of it and they want to see something other than someone just being fined or punished or sent to prison for a couple more days for expressing hatred so and um, we're, we're coming to the end of our time so i just want to to ask one other question because of course our you know you mentioned there mark that that it works on the periphery of the criminal justice system or it's an alternative measure so if we're talking about the process of law reform and legal reform do do the four of you think that in developing hate crime legislation, restorative justice should be a pillar or inserted into that legislation. Do you think that hate crime statute, whatever it is and whatever it's called, should include a section on restorative justice? And if so, what would that look like? I think it has to have an element of it, certainly, because it is empowerment and it is about choice, but it's not going to be for everyone and it has to be voluntary and it has to be safe. So it should, it, it is well placed in the legislation, similar to our Victims Code, having, you know, empowering victims to have access, to know about it, to understand it and to opt in if they wish, would be my view. So for you, it's prioritising that notion of volunteerism. And Alex, what would what would it look like for you then? Yeah, again, I think in legislation, I think it would need to be, again, for the right circumstances, something that should always be considered, you know, because as Mark's kind of put it, for the police, actually engaging with communities and giving communities a positive outcome and a positive experience has other has, has a far-wrenching kind of benefits. So, you know, in terms of an engagement kind of tool for the police, I think it's really key that victims are given that option to empower them to be, let's like say, centre stage and take ownership of that process as they are the victim of that crime. Um, so I, I would like it always to be considered, whether that be as the outcome or in terms of it's gone through the courts as a post-sentence programme that you could do possibly with probation and the offender, because ultimately it's about changing behaviour and actually talking about that is you know, having some form of communication, I think, is the best way that you're going to change that behaviour. So, yes, I would like to see it always considered at, at the different points. And Darren, do, do you have anything to add there? From a civil society perspective, yes, it would be advantageous to have it, I suppose, embedded and, and, and sort of entwined within the structures of any sort of forthcoming hate crime legislation for ourselves, because it allows for, again, what, what Kate and Alex were saying, the idea of that sort of voluntary aspect to, to be always there, to allow for the empowerment of the victim. But also then is the fact that, that that concept, as you mentioned earlier, Mark, about the professionalism and how it's taken away from, from someone. If we create professional systems, are we just replicating some of the issues where, you know, we're, we're, we're taking, again, removing the voice and, and then it's become something that is being carried out on behalf of or instead of with those who've been harmed. So it, it should also be embedded at all stages and it should also be offered as an alternative. I think that if you always at any stage, whether it's actually a probation stage, at a pre-sentencing stage or a post-sentencing stage or, or even as an alternative towards prosecution or chosen as, as an alternative completely from actually involving this the, the criminal justice system, that at least we recognise that um, this, it's the empowerment of the, the victim or the person harmed to make that choice and to be guided and supported in making those choices so they can have the co-authorship of outcome, the co-authorship of moving beyond the harm that's been caused, particularly when we think of the actual pernicious aspect of hate and hostility and the impact it has not just on the individual, but also on the communities that identify with that individual who's been hurt. And Mark, I'm going to reframe the question very slightly for you. And that is, could we turn the lens on the offender here? 
And could I ask you, in the same way that volunteerism, as Kate said, it should be a core principle and we should think about harm. Uh, and indeed, Darren talked about harm more generally, uh, as well as inter- the harmer, uh, as well as the harmed. Can I ask you just what would hate crime legislation look like from the perspective of the harmer or the offender? And is there anything in particular that we need to think about there with respect to its application to ORJ? And is it possible, and you know, you're all practitioners here and you've all sat in the room, is it possible for the, the harmer or the offender to basically pull the wool over someone's eyes and kind of nod and go, that's awful, that's really, really awful. I totally hear what you're saying. I'm walking out of the room and skip down the road thinking to themselves well sure wasn't that marvellous now I don't have a criminal conviction all I had to do is nod and smile in the room and look like I was terribly sorry for everything that I'd done is it possible for the ORJ to be misused in that way and I suppose I'm, I'm asking you Mark as well as all the others just to turn the lens perhaps a little bit on, on the, the offender in this last or penultimate question yeah of course and I think with everything in life there's a an opportunity for someone to manipulate a process and to, to do it for their own benefit. And of course, you know, you could say the same about the conventional process in terms of showing remorse and, and having a reduction in your sentence for showing remorse. And you, if you're a good actor and you're, you're not actually really remorseful, you might get a third of your sentence for it. But I think that in terms of the chances of that happening, it's reduced in restorative justice because restorative justice uh, focuses on uh, emotionality and, and empathy. So uh, in, instead of being punished for something and told that you've done something wrong, which is how the conventional process works in restorative justice, you're being asked to to listen to someone's story and to to uh, to understand their their pain and their harm, and then to think about that and respond to it. Ultimately, the process of restorative justice is about repairing harm and. You don't necessarily need to repair harm by showing that someone has had a true transformation in their attitudes towards people who are different. That's not the goal. If you make that the goal, then restorative justice will fail 90 out of 100 times. Okay, And therefore, it's not going to be an effective criminal justice response. If you make the aims of restorative justice, firstly, the victim has a say in what happens, that they are able to express how something has affected them and their after for some kind of reparation to be agreed, then of course, restorative justice is going to be much more successful. If you go beyond that by saying, oh, and we want compassion and we want forgiveness and we want transformation and attitudes, those things happen. They're much more likely to happen through restorative justice, but they're not necessarily the goal of restorative justice. So just very quickly to finish off, there are a couple of jurisdictions which have introduced restorative justice into their hate crime legislation. So in California, for example, it states as a matter of policy that the goal of hate crime legislation is punishment and restorative justice. Now, we could have an academic discussion as to whether those are reconcilable, those two aims or not. But nonetheless, it puts restorative justice at the forefront of the goal of, of hate crime legislation. A new piece of legislation in Illinois, for example, states that for the hate element of a crime, instead of enhancing the penalty, so give them you know, an extra three months imprisonment, the court can impose uh, an education uh, measure. And I know that in, a, in Illinois, that education measure is a restorative justice practice and, and will be very soon. So I think there are ways in which you can integrate restorative justice 
into hate crime legislation. And there are different levels in which you can do that. It's not always saying that the victim has to be involved, but it's about giving them an opportunity to be involved through then volunteering, through consent to be involved. If that doesn't happen, you can use proxy victims, you can use reparative measures that involve community. There are all sorts of different ways in which you can integrate a restorative response to hate crime that doesn't necessarily fail if the victim says, I don't want to be directly involved. But We've run out of time. We can't talk about all of that. You'll just have to read my new book, which is called Criminalising Hate, Law and Social Justice Liberalism, which will be out later this summer in all good book retailers. But we've gone over time. And thank you so much, everyone, for all of your insightful comments and uh, your contributions. They're so valuable to this conversation. It's still new. It's still evolving. And it's an important one to, I think, finish our podcast with a discussion on what restorative justice might look like for hate crimes. Thank you so much. I think we could have gone on for another two hours on that, Mark. I learned so much and there's so much more, I think, for for everyone to learn. So thank you all so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Normally I sign off by saying I hope you've enjoyed it and look forward to the the next podcast. But today's is the last in the series. I hope you've enjoyed all of the episodes and you never know, watch the space. There might be a new series later with uh, Jennifer and I, but thanks so much for listening and take care. Hate Crime on the Two Islands is a podcast funded by the European Centre for the Study of Hate at the University of Limerick, written by Mark Walters and Jennifer Schwepp and produced by Mark Walters, Jennifer Schwepp and Kate O'Donovan. 